Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Looking this morning at uh, some statistics that have come out recently, uh, and they've been talking about church attendance nationally, um, that our, our attendance in church services like this one has decreased in the last two years. We've seen kind of a large-scale exodus, uh, about 10% loss in the last 10 years. Uh, But most recently, uh, according to American Family Survey, uh, they suggest that church attendance, that's attending one to two times per month, not very much, right? That that's actually decreased by some 6%. You can see the statistics here in front of us. Those who attend a few times a year, they're pretty much, well, staying the same. And those who attend never or seldom, uh, those are not really going anywhere either. But the bigger question here is why? Why is it that church attendance has decreased in the midst of a pandemic? Why are so many seeming to leave the church amidst a crisis? Because if you think about it, right, if there's a global pandemic, we might become more religious, more willing to attend a church service than less, right? Isn't that what we saw on September 11th? We saw massive increases in church attendance following something that threatened us. So why now has church attendance decrease. Well, of course, we recognize that it's a pandemic, that being around people puts you at risk. But theologically, we also know something else to be true. We know that there are always those who are initially showing themselves to be Christian, but when hard times and difficulties come, they tend to walk away from the faith. Jesus described this very phenomenon, Matthew chapter 13, where he describes a people like soils, and then when the gospel, the good news of the gospel is planted upon them, some respond with faith while others are choked out by the cares and concerns of this world. John describes it for us in 1 John chapter 2. He says that some went out from us because they were never really of us. See, there is this constant tendency for those to show forth some initial fruitfulness, but then in the long term, abandon that faith. So our question this morning, why? John Piper suggests in the introduction to his book, Finally Alive, that we have people in our churches who he would call unregenerate, people who have not been born again into the faith and therefore do not continue in the faith when difficulties and trials come. See, we have this question before us this morning, what is it for us to be born again? again. And how does that cause us to have staying power in the faith through difficulty? See, as we come to John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21 this morning, here's our big idea. This is what we're pushing toward this morning, that sinners need a sin substitute to be born again. That you and I, in our natural default state, have violated God's righteousness and His holiness, and we need a sin substitute, a snake on our behalf, as we'll see in our text later on this morning, that we can look to that takes upon our guilty conscience, that takes upon our guilt before God. 
We're going to see this in three different phases in this conversation with Nicodemus that happens in verses one through eight in John chapter three. We're going to see Jesus give a correction. The first correction is this, that Nicodemus, you're not as spiritual as you think you are. And then the second correction is going to come in in verses nine through 12, where he's going to say, Nicodemus, you don't know what you think you know. And then finally, we're going to see some conclusion here that belief in Jesus is the basis of eternal life the basis of our being born again. I want to invite you to John chapter 3 with me. As we start in verses 1 through 8, uh, we see this first correction that Jesus has with Nicodemus. It starts in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, uh, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. See, we're introduced to this character here in John chapter 3. In fact, John's kind of notorious for some of the characters that we're introduced to in this gospel. And here we're introduced to Nicodemus. I'm going to call him Nico for the rest because it's two syllables rather than four, right? We'll all appreciate the time we've saved by the end of the day, right? And so here's the description of Nico. He was a, a man of the Pharisees. And not only that, he was a ruler of the Jews. And it tells us here in verse 2 that he came to Jesus in secrecy by cover of night. He wants to have this meeting with Jesus in secret, away from the eyeballs of the Pharisees that he hangs out with, that he rubs shoulders with. And he gives us his understanding of Jesus in verse 2. Notice what he says, that he's a teacher that he's performing miraculous signs. And so he comes to this conclusion that God is, is with him. But Jesus knows something's missing in this interaction with Nicodemus. And so Jesus sets about to kind of course correct Nicodemus's understanding of who he is. And we see this in the second half of verse 2 through verse 5. See, Jesus hears something that, that Nicodemus says, and he responds. Notably, when, when Nico says in verse 2 that he knows that he's a teacher come from God. He's using a word that, that is oriented around knowing from seeing, that Nicodemus has seen what Jesus has done, and he knows, therefore, that he's with God. But Jesus picks up on that word seeing, and he says, hey, without being born again, no one will see the kingdom. He does it again in verses 4 and 5. Nico asks about entering again into his mother's womb gross, right? Verse 5, Jesus picks up on that. It says, no one will enter the kingdom of God without being born again. He's picking up on his language, and he's drawing out and exposing Nico's understanding, and he's recentering Nico's understanding around this concept of being born again or regenerated. 
Notice in, in our text this morning that verses 3 and 5 are parallel statements. Look at what he says in verse 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In verse 5, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we can naturally assume whatever it is to be born again is similar to that which it is to be um, born of water and the Spirit. Whatever it is to see the kingdom is similar, or if not the same thing, as entering into the kingdom. What is Jesus then referring to? When he's talking about this concept of being born of water and spirit, or being born again. See, if you are uh, a Jew, a Pharisee at this point in time, you would have been familiar with a passage from Ezekiel chapter 36. In Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, the prophet writes this. He says, uh, from the Lord, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And it's not just that. Later on in Ezekiel chapter 37, uh, Ezekiel has this vision where he's brought to this valley full of dead men's bones. And the Spirit, God says to him, he says, uh, Ezekiel, prophesy. And he starts to prophesy the words of God, and, and the bones start to pick up themselves and form together into people. They take on flesh, and God breathes the breath of life into them, and they become new people. They're born again. See, Ezekiel preaches the words of God over this valley of dry bones, and he breathes the breath of God into them through the words of God, and they are born again. And so Nicodemus would be familiar with this language. See, Jesus is inviting him to interpret this passage that he would have known very well with a new sense of fulfillment. Nico was himself a valley of dry bones. His righteous works were not enough. And if he wants to see the kingdom of God, if he wants to enter the kingdom of God, he must be born again. From there, Jesus goes into this kind of prevailing principle in verses six through eight. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. He's telling us that like things come from like things, that fish don't give birth to apple trees, and apple trees don't bring forth coyotes. It doesn't work that way. Apple trees bring forth apple trees, and pear trees bring forth pear trees, right? See, our nature as humans is to do natural things, and when we talk about spiritual things, it's completely foreign to us. And further, in verse 8, he describes that the spiritual things... uh, actually are outside of our control. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. See, the Spirit of God isn't beholden to our good works or our efforts, as it were. See, what this amounts to is this is a complete teardown of Nico's worldview. 
What it amounts to is that God, Jesus, is interact with Nicodemus in such a way that he's exposing his fundamental beliefs. See, Nicodemus believed that by keeping the law, he kept himself righteous, and God was going to bless him based upon his righteousness. And Jesus is telling him, saying, you've got to be born again to be spiritual. You've got to be remade, reshaped, renewed. You don't have what it takes to be righteous before God. See, what Jesus is telling us this morning is that spiritual life requires a complete overhaul. Imagine you have a car. I get in bad territory every time I talk about cars publicly, right? But imagine you have a car and something's wrong and you take it to the mechanic and the mechanic looks at you and said, from bumper to bumper, every system in this thing is busted. Everything is broken. Nothing works correctly. The best thing you can do with this car is scrap it and melt it down and try and use it for something else. See, that's what we are spiritually. The best thing we can do with our spiritual life is be remade, reoriented to the spiritual reality in which we live. Consider just for a second what God says in his word about our nature. Isaiah 64, 6 says that our righteousness is like filthy rags. It's like blood-soaked rags. It is the the pinnacle of our uncleanness before God. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He goes on in Romans chapter 8 to tell us that we cannot please God in the flesh. See, all humanity is affected by this inherent sinfulness that we have so that all of our parts, all of our flesh is corrupted by this inherent sinfulness. No one portion of us can be righteous without God's intervention, such that the whole of our being needs to be remade, needs to be born again, as it were. The truth is this morning that you and I are not good people who occasionally do good or bad things. We're not people who try to generally do what's right and occasionally fail and make mistakes. The Scriptures tell us that we are sinners through and through. And if sin is lawlessness, you and I are fundamentally rebels against a holy and righteous God. So that even our good deeds like Nicodemus's are tainted with sinfulness. In fact, when Jesus tells Nico that he must be born again, the statement there is plural. Look at what he says in verse 7. Verse 7, he says to him, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. That, that term is actually plural. It's you all, if you were in the South, or y'all. I can't even say it correctly. You all must be born again. Jesus is saying not just a statement to Nicodemus, He's saying a statement about humanity, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus isn't done. Now, when Nicodemus objects, Jesus presses even further into Nico's understanding. He wants to press even further into how Nico understands the spiritual reality that he lives in. 
And so in verses 9 through 12, it's not just that you're not as spiritual as you think you are. Jesus is going to tell Nicodemus, you don't know what you think you know. Look at what he says in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? See, Nico brings up this objection, and he's saying, how can these things be? And it's kind of tainted with this uh, objective language. It's, it's actually a, a objection or an objection to what Jesus has said. Jesus has told him that he must be born again, and Nicodemus is responding and saying, I don't know if I believe that. And Jesus responds to Nicodemus' objection in verses 10 through 12. And in verse 10, Jesus questions Nico's ability to be a teacher of Israel. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? This is spirituality 101, Nicodemus. If you don't understand these things, what kind of leader, what kind of teacher are you? It's like a, a blind man teachers, teaching driver's training, or a deaf man offering music lessons. This doesn't work. This man is fundamentally ill-equipped for the task that he's trying to perform. By the way, this is what Jesus has always been doing with the Pharisees. If we were to flip backward in our New Testament, we would come to Matthew chapter 23. And in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is proclaiming woes to scribes and Pharisees. And he says things like this. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single convert. And when, you, when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Jesus' constant interaction with the Pharisees is to say, you're not equipped to lead. You are incapable. You are bad shepherds, we'll see in John chapter 10. Jesus continues in verses 11 through 12. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. It's not simply uh, that he doesn't know, that Nicodemus doesn't know. It's also that he's unwilling to learn. When Jesus tells him how he can be born again on the earth, earthly things, as it were, he doesn't listen. And Jesus is asking the question, how can I tell you about spiritual things? How can I tell you about this kingdom that you want to see and you want to enter if you're not willing to be born again? If you're not willing to receive earthly instruction? See, spiritual life, it's not just too far for us from a righteousness perspective. We're tainted by sin. What Jesus is telling Nicodemus and telling us this morning that spiritual life is foreign to us. Our, our, our problem isn't just that sin keeps us from a spiritual existence, that we have a spiritual confusion of categories, that we are earthly by nature and not spiritual. One of my favorite cinematic masterpieces that's been created on film is the film Elf. It's amazing, right? And I, I don't advocate movies, so don't hear me say that, but the movie is fundamentally a fish-out-of-water story, right? 
It's, it's about a man who's raised by elves, elves, plural of elf, right? And he comes back to New York City, and he's trying to navigate the complexities of life in this city. Of course, there's other examples of fish-out-of-water stories. It's Aladdin, the street rat living in the Sultan's palace. It's season six of Parks and Rec, where Andy Dwyer is trying to run a nonprofit as a former shoeshine guy, right? See, in a spiritual world, you and I are fish out of water. The environment of spiritual things is foreign to us, and we take to it awkwardly, like a giraffe born on an ice skating rink. You and I don't understand spiritual things fundamentally. We think in terms of cause and effect. We think in terms of uh, just cells and atoms and this material world in which we live, but the spiritual realities of our existence escape us, don't they? thank God that Jesus just doesn't leave Nicodemus in this state. Nicodemus, you're not as spiritual as you think you are, and you don't know what you think you know. Thanks be to God that Jesus came in the flesh to orient us to a spiritual life that is foreign to us. Thanks be to God that Jesus has shown us a better way. We have a spiritual guide, a heavenly tour guide in the person of Christ. Jesus knows the ins and outs of our spiritual existence. He gives his word to impart his wisdom of spiritual things to us. And now by the presence of the spirit, he guides and directs us. Praise be to God, right? He doesn't just leave us in verses 1 through 11 of John chapter 3. He pushes forward into this next section. And he wants to bring hope to even the likes of the sin-hardened Nicodemus. Look at verse 13 through 15. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Just slow down here for a second and soak in the promise of what Jesus presents to us here. Not just the condemnation of these first 11 or 12 verses, but the hopefulness of his present reality with us here this morning. Look at what he says. Jesus gives us hope. The first thing he says in verse 13, he says that Jesus alone comes from heaven and he alone can get back to heaven. That's what he says in verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. I'm the only one who knows the way. Jesus alone can speak authoritatively about spiritual things because he alone came from heaven. In fact, no one can get back to heaven without Jesus. Jesus is going to make some really strange statements later on in our book of John. He's going to start telling people, he said, I'm going to go somewhere where you cannot come. I'm going to go somewhere where you cannot follow me. Some people interpret that they think he's going to kill himself. Others think that he's going to go off into the wilderness somewhere. But fundamentally, Jesus is talking about a spiritual life that he's going back to his father, that he's leaving the breadcrumbs for us, as it were, that we could follow with him. 
verse 14, he tells us exactly how this happened. And not just that Jesus comes from heaven and shows us the way back to heaven, but Jesus will be put to death to bring healing. Look at what he says in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, you might stop, step back from this and say, what on earth is he talking about here? Moses lifting up a serpent in the wilderness? Like, what's going on? If you go back in, in the Old Testament, Numbers 20, 21, Moses and the Israelites had a problem. See, what the Israelites continually did before God is they grumbled about their situation and their circumstances. And so they were complaining uh, before Moses and before God. And so God sends these fiery serpents into their midst that every time one of them bites an Israelite, they end up dead. And as the people kind of do the math, they say, this has come to us because of our grumbling. They confess their sin to Moses, and Moses comes before the Lord. And the Lord gives Moses this um, remedy, as it were. Moses is to make a bronze serpent, and he's to fix it on top of a pole. And as they're kind of traveling through the wilderness, uh, Moses or whoever else is supposed to lift up this bronze serpent so that whoever is snake-bitten, if they look at the bronze serpent, will be healed of their snake-bittenness, right? And notice how Jesus likens himself to this bronze snake from Numbers chapter 21. He was to be lifted up. In fact, every time in our book of John, every time Jesus speaks about being lifted up, he's talking about his coming death. And so just as the snake was lifted up and to be looked upon for the saving of one's life, Jesus Christ will be lifted up upon a cross. He will lay down his life. He will give himself as a sacrifice to pay for the snake-bitten sinners that will look to him. See, Jesus is drawing us to this future orientation of what's going to happen so that Nicodemus and we ourselves can place faith upon Jesus and find forgiveness of sins. Finally, in verse 15, those who believe in him will have eternal life. Look at verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus draws us to another subtle analogy to the snake, uh, the bronze serpent in Numbers 21. Just as the Israelites were healed from their snake bites by looking at the bronze serpent, all those who would have faith in Jesus would receive eternal life. They would be born again as it were. See, only the one who is in the beginning with God can lead us to eternal life. Only Jesus, who is with God, preexistent with God, will always be in eternity. He alone can lead us to eternal life through his self-sacrificial death, his atonement that he's made for our wrongdoings and our sins. He has laid his life down. He was lifted up so that we could look to him in our sinfulness. Now, just notice this for a second. When Jesus comes into contact with a legalist, he goes to the gospel. When Jesus comes into contact with someone who relies upon their own works, the thing he starts talking about is gospel orientation, about how he needed to be born again. See, the antidote to self-reliant religion is the bright, purifying light of God's grace in Jesus Christ. It's the age-old story of substitution and unmerited favor, which will eventually break Nico down. So Jesus shows us here how to be born again. 
Now, what we have in verse 16 through 21 is interesting. If you look at your Bible, a lot of your Bibles will have this in red lettering, meaning that Jesus is saying these words. Now, in the original manuscripts, there were no red letters. Let's just say that. But when we look at the language of verses 16 through 21, there's reason for us to believe that this section is not stated by Jesus, that it's probably actually a commentary made by John. A couple of reasons for that. Um, the only other place where the, the term only son is used is in a commentary by John in John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. In fact, when Jesus refers to himself, he prefers the title son of man. Further, uh, whenever Jesus refers to God the Father, his normal wording is my father, not God or theos. And so we have reasons to believe that verses 16 through 21 are kind of a, a parenthesis by, by John, that he wants to interpret what just happened. He wants to kind of pause for a second and bring us to a state of reflection on what Jesus just said. So what does John say about this? First thing he says in verses 16 through 17. Look with me at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, John's first interpretation is that he wants us to see that God loved the world enough to save it through Jesus. The the Father is so filled with love for humanity that he's moved to action. He was not content to leave humanity to face his wrath. Uh, In fact, God's purpose in sending Jesus was salvation and not condemnation. number of times we talk about love. We talk about what love is. And fundamentally, when we look at John 3, verse 16 and 17, we see that love is self-sacrificing. We talk about love, about falling into love or falling out of love. I sit in the counseling office and I hear from people who describe themselves as no longer loving someone else, but love here in this passage is self-sacrificing action for another. When God speaks about love, he doesn't describe it as an emotion. He describes it as an action. God so loved the world that he gave. He describes it specifically in contradiction to another action. The Son of Man does not come to bring condemnation this first time. He will come again, and he will bring condemnation. He will bring justice to the earth. But for this first coming, for this first uh, arrival of Jesus on the planet Earth, it is for the purpose of bringing salvation. Notice what else he says in, in verses 18 through 21. He says that people are condemned because they haven't believed in Jesus. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See, unbelief is the only condemning sin. 
It's the sin of unbelief that brings us into a state of being under God's wrath. See, John tells us that unbelief is what condemns us. Let that sink in for a, sm- for a second this morning, that the thief is not condemned in his thievery. The homosexual is not condemned in his sexual sin. The adulterer is not condemned in their sexual sin. In fact, all of those things are just symptoms of a greater disease, namely unbelief. Jesus tells us that the cause of this unbelief is the primary love of wickedness. Verse 19, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We don't come to the light because we're afraid that our deeds will be exposed for what they are. By contrast, in verse 21, those who do trust in Jesus come into the light. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. We go back to Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify God in heaven. Our works speak of our salvation in Jesus Christ. We step back from from this for a moment. We say, what are we seeing here? There's this threefold interaction that first Jesus tells Nicodemus that he's not as spiritual as he thinks he is, that he's tainted by sin and he needs to be born again. Secondly, he then tells Nicodemus that he doesn't know what he thinks he knows in verses 9 through 12. And finally, Jesus offers himself as the means of being reborn, of being born again. I stop and just ponder this for a second. What about this guy, Nicodemus? Where does he go from here? What happens with this guy? In God's providence, there's two more passages in in the book of John that describe Nicodemus's interaction. In John chapter 7, when we get there later on as we preach through this book, we'll see an interaction between Jesus and his, or between Nicodemus and his Pharisee friends. And really, uh, Nicodemus is speaking up on behalf of Jesus. And so in John chapter 7, verse 50 and 51, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, who had gone to Jesus before, and who was one of the Pharisees, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? See, Nicodemus is advocating on behalf of Jesus that he wouldn't be judged too prematurely. And it's in John 19 that Nicodemus comes and helps with Jesus' burial. He brings uh, these burial perfumes, this mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 70 pounds in weight, probably quite expensive. He does so at great risk to himself, right? That he would be exposed as one who helped bury the man that his friends had just put to death. See, in each instance... Nicodemus's visit with Jesus is brought up, and in each instance, we see a greater expression of faith from Nicodemus. See, this morning, as we look at the life of Nicodemus, if, if God can save the likes of the proud, like Nicodemus, He can save all of us that all of us have opportunity for us to place faith in Jesus. Nobody's too far gone. Nobody's uh, too good for the gospel, and nobody's not good enough for the gospel. 
Nicodemus shows us that God interacts with us with grace and mercy. It's worth noting this morning, isn't it, that Nicodemus stands as, as the first example. The next example will be this woman at the well, a woman who's had multiple husbands, who's far away from the Lord, who's a Samaritan, who lives in this kind of half-breed uh, Jewish religion, kind of uh, in between, right? And plunked between those two individuals, between Nicodemus and this woman at the well, is this verse that we're so familiar with, John three sixteen. God so loved the world that whoever believes in him, will not perish, but have eternal life. Do you believe that this morning? That whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That the fundamental basis of our relation with God is our belief and not our action. See, the truth is this morning, as we kind of think about what this text has meaning for us this morning, that none of us belong here. You're saying what, in a garage? Like none of us belong in a garage? No, none of us belong here in this place where we worship. Nobody's earned or merited their way into this standing with God. See, there's places on earth that you'll step into that everybody there has earned their standing there. You can go to the campus at MIT, and everybody there who's the student there has earned their standing. You can go to the trading floor in Wall Street, and everybody who's there, who's credentialed, has earned their standing. You can go to the, the locker rooms of the famous sports teams, and you can kind of tiptoe around the ego, egos of those there, because everyone there has earned their standing. But this morning, we're all here by the grace of another. If we're in Christ, if we've placed faith in Jesus Christ, we come here by grace and grace alone. None of us has come into the presence of worship this morning by our own achievement. Nobody earns their standing in the church. Nobody earns what they have. Everybody has been given grace from God if they relate rightly to God. Isn't that true? And so if this is true, what Jesus says to, to Nicodemus, that we must be born again, there is no room for superiority. Is there, there's no room for hierarchy. I love Tim Keller. He shares an illustration, and I'm going to steal it this morning. Picasso said that good artists borrow, great artists steal, so I'm going to steal. And uh, he has this, this illustration that he uses. And he gives two characters. Let's call them Bob and Jenny. And Bob is about to be fired. Bob's at his work. He's, he's got no upward mobility. He doesn't have the skill set to, to kind of work himself into a better position. And so he's in a bad way at the office. Whereas Jenny has all of the upward mobility. She is capable. She's smart. She's an up-and-comer. She has everything that it takes for her to progress in her job. She makes two times as much as Bob and has as much secure in, as an investment portfolio as you can understand uh, she would have. And so the company sees her as a keeper. She has this upward mobility. She's established. 
See, with these things in mind, it's easy for, for Bob to be envious of Jenny and for Jenny to kind of look down with disdain at Bob. In fact, that's our next slide, right? Uh, Bob can kind of be envious of Jenny and her situation. She has the money. She has the upward mobility. She has life by the tail, as it were. And Jenny can look down at Bob. If he would just do this and this and this better, perhaps he would be in a better way with his employment situation. See, what we have in front of us this morning in, in Nicodemus and Jesus is that Nicodemus thinks that he has the spiritual high ground. Notice that when he introduces himself, he says, we, we all, it's another plural. He's describing not just himself, but all of the Pharisees. He's part of this group. He's on the inner circle, the inner track of spiritual life in Israel. And so he can look back at Jesus and say, I know that you're a teacher and that God is with you. And it's kind of like, you know, be warm and well fed. And so Nicodemus sees himself as, as being in the high ground, having uh, the, the spiritual track, as it were. But when we come to faith in Jesus, it takes away the fulcrum by which we assess our value. It takes away that little dollar sign that was on our previous slide, and it sets us on the same footing that we have faith in Jesus Christ, that we're not any better or any worse off than someone else. We're all on equal footing. See, neither Bob's life nor uh, Jenny's life are enviable. The message of the cross is, as Keller says, tells us two things, that I am more sinful than I ever thought possible, but I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream. That God loved me enough to send his son as a sacrifice to forgive my sins, to, to bring me into the fold of his sheep, as it were. I'm more sinful than I could have known. It's so pervasive in me. I can't perform any good righteous acts to earn my favor or standing with God. But God has shown me love that I didn't deserve by giving his own son. See, here's the truth this morning is that if John 3.16 is true, and it is, then there's no room for us to feel better than someone else or to feel worse than someone else. There's no room for us to be superior in any meaningful way. See, if John 16 is, is true, John 3.16 is true, in this room, the alcoholic and the teetotaler, the sexual sinner and the virgin, the liar and the truth teller, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But whoever believes in him has eternal life. Both of those things are true for all of those categories of people. And those two sentences have power for complete humility and endless joy. So Christian, here's your work. Your work is to remind yourself of the abundant grace you've received. To consider Jesus' words to Nicodemus, his spiritual life was not what he thought it was. He was not as familiar with spiritual things as he thought he was. That we ourselves were far off from God in our character, that spiritual things were foreign to us, and that finally, by divine miracle of God's grace to us, we've been set apart to holiness by faith in Jesus Christ. See, now that you've recognized that you're snake-bitten, you look to the one who is truly righteous, Jesus Christ, and that by faith, his righteous life becomes yours.
The truth is this morning that our spiritual state was such that we needed to be born again. You and I needed a restart. We needed a spiritual overhaul. And what we have by faith in Jesus Christ is exactly that. Amen? Listen, I understand that for many of us, this message is old hat. For many of us, we've heard this message time and time and time again. You know what I'm discovering that the work of the Christian life is in my 40s? It's to rediscover the gospel afresh and anew each day. To be reminded that I don't deserve the things that God has granted to me by grace. And to recognize that today I'm just as a needy sinner as I was at day one when I was 10 years old and came to faith in Jesus. So you and I have to rediscover this situation, just like Nicodemus. We have to come back and recognize that we're not deserving as we think we are. And we need grace and mercy from God to come into his presence. I wonder if we might cultivate that. I wonder if that might become a message, not just that we should proclaim to other people. I wonder if that might be a message that we proclaim to ourselves, that we actually internalize, that doesn't just affect our head, but affects our hearts and our hands as well. I want to pray this morning that God does that in us, that he actually forms us through the gospel, that he allows us to to resonate with the truth of the gospel in such a way that we would take on the character of Christ, uh, the power of the Spirit. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask now that you would accomplish this, that you would allow us to be those who have rich faith in Jesus, that we wouldn't count ourselves deserving but that we would find you to be gracious and kind to sinners like us. Lord, I pray that as we recognize our need before you, that you would allow us the grace and mercy to trust and delight in your grace and kindness to us. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.